0: Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle24 with me, Marcus Hippie. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, as Canadians head to the polls for a snap election, we ask if the country's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, can cling to power.
1: I am not going to back down no matter how many of them show up to try and shout us down from what I know to be true, what science tells us, what Canadians have told me, which is people are willing to do their part to get through this pandemic. And that's what we will do.
0: Plus, we meet Sarah Cracknell of the British band Saint Etienne to discuss the release of the band's
2: 10th album. We were thinking about the period between about 97 and then the Twin Towers going down and about there was a lot of optimism in 97, a huge amount of optimism. And then, did we remember it correctly, etc.? So we we started making music with that in mind.
0: All that and much, much more over the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Marcus Hippie. On the 20th of September, Canadians go to the polls in a snap general election which was called by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau last month. All this week on The Globalist, our Bureau Chief in Toronto, Thomas Lewis, profiled the leaders of the country's main parties and assessed what might lie in store for them on election day. In this highlight, we focus on the leader of the Liberal Party of Canada, Canada's incumbent Prime Minister Justin
1: Trudeau. Merci de vous joindre à nous ici, Rideau Hall, aujourd'hui.
3: There is one question that's followed Justin Trudeau most persistently during this snap general election campaign, and that is why less than two years since the last one is an election taking place at all.
1: Real solutions to the real problems we face. A better, stronger Canada for everyone. That is your future to choose. And this is your time to
3: choose it. Trudeau has framed this snap election as a chance to give Canadians a choice in the future direction of the country in the wake of the upheavals of the coronavirus pandemic. But his opponents have seized on that and have described it as an attempted power grab.
4: You called an election, sir. You put your own political interests ahead of the well-being of thousands of people. Leadership is about putting others first, not
3: yourself. And it's a characterization that has stuck, as Gary Keller, vice president of the Strategy Core Consultancy in Ottawa, explains.
5: The surprising thing in this campaign is how disorganized the Liberal Party appeared to be, even though they're the ones who decided on the election the timing, the theme of the campaign. And I think in the early days of the campaign, there didn't seem to be any cohesive message about why we're having a election campaign.
3: Despite the overwhelming popularity of Trudeau's leadership during the coronavirus pandemic, this is now a race that is closer and angrier than many expected. Before the election had even been called, Trudeau had laid out several lines in the sand. He promised an ambitious national childcare programme and vowed to implement vaccine mandates for government employees and for anyone wanting to travel by plane or train in Canada. In response, the protesters have come, and Trudeau has been their most consistent target. Some of them have even trailed his campaign right across the country. But last Monday in the city of London, in the province of Ontario, that anger reached a flashpoint.
6: At least one protester threw what appeared to be gravel or small stones at Trudeau while he was boarding his bus. The Liberal leader told reporters afterwards he was in fact hit, but was okay
1: a few misguided individuals who don't believe in science who just want to watch things burn are not going to make us flinch from doing the right thing
3: gary keller again
5: these small groups of angry vocal protesters who seem to be trailing him all around the country they could actually end up helping him get elected on election day by canadians who say don't like everything the Prime Minister has done so far, but that's just a step too far and we don't support that in Canada, that kind of electoral violence.
1: And I am not gonna back down no matter how many of them show up to try and shout us down from what I know to be true, what science tells us, what Canadians have told me, which is people are willing to do their part to get through this pandemic and that's what we will do. Together.
3: But other big and consequential issues have jostled as priorities during this campaign, too. The process of reconciliation with Canada's Indigenous populations, after a profound national reckoning on the issue, began earlier this year. Climate change, which, following a summer of record-breaking temperatures and devastating wildfires, is playing out in real time in many parts of the country. And other issues, like slowing the steep rise in the cost of living and explaining the chaos of Canada's departure from Afghanistan, have become key campaign issues too. But ultimately this election will be a numbers game. In the last election in 2019, the Conservative Party won the popular vote, but the Liberal Party won the most seats. To replicate that this time around, dozens of key constituencies in British Columbia, in Ontario, and in Trudeau's home province of Quebec are a priority for him. This exchange at last week's French language leaders debate at the Canadian Museum of History, which you'll hear spoken by the translator, highlighted this when Trudeau challenged the leader of the Bloc Québécois party over the province's best interests.
7: You keep forgetting,
5: I'm a Quebecer, I'm a proud Quebecer, I've always been a Quebecer, I will always be a Quebecer and I will always have a say in what happens in Quebec. You do not have a monopoly over Quebec. Gary Keller again. Well, Justin Trudeau, he's a bit like his father in a lot of ways. He's a combative leader. He relishes confrontation. The other thing about Justin Trudeau, for better or for worse, the Liberal Party is Justin Trudeau and Justin Trudeau is the Liberal Party, which is a bit of a departure from traditional liberal leaders. And so that was very effective in 2015, when he was a very effective contrast to outgoing Prime Minister Harper. It may have been less so in 2019, but Canadians gave him a minority government. This time, if people are not convinced, especially on the progressive left, that he is a leader on progressive issues, they may turn to other options in this election campaign.
3: The question is, will voters want to reward the party that led them through an unprecedented national crisis? Or will they turn to the party that offers the most ambitious idea of what comes next? This hasn't been the campaign that Trudeau would have hoped he'd be running in. He's traded a healthy lead in public approval for a contest that is effectively neck and neck, and one that he could feasibly lose. At this stage, it feels that only the winning of a parliamentary majority would secure Trudeau's own future as his party's leader. That result right now seems unlikely, but it's certainly still possible. Whatever the result this time around, victory, defeat or some mixture of the two, Justin Trudeau will likely ponder, maybe in private, whether he should have even called this election in the first place. For Monocle in Ottawa, I'm Thomas Lewis.
0: That was Monocle's Toronto Bureau Chief, Thomas Lewis. Staying with global affairs now for this week's edition of the Foreign Desk Explainer. Once a good friend and political ally of Nicaragua's president, Daniel Ortega, novelist Sergio Ramirez now finds himself an enemy of the state. Here Andrew Miller explains how this plot
4: developed. There is only one good thing to be said for the spectacle of a given government picking on writers and or novelists and or artists of any description. It saves the busy bypasser whatever valuable time they may have spent wondering whether the government in question still has all its marbles in one sock. When a given government starts picking on writers and or novelists and or artists of any description, it is announcing itself as tyrannical, foolish and deranged. Such is the unhappy, if altogether unsurprising, waypoint arrived at by the regime of Daniel Ortega, president of Nicaragua, as demonstrated by its issue of a warrant for the arrest of Sergio Ramirez, probably Nicaragua's best-known and most admired novelist, one-time winner of the Miguel de Cervantes Prize awarded by Spain's Ministry of Culture to recognise outstanding Spanish-language literature, and therefore a peer of Borges, Fuentes, Vargas Llosa and Pan among other distinguished Scriveners. Any hair splitter wishing to note at this point that the warrant has been issued by Nicaragua's state prosecutors and not by the presidency has not been paying much attention to the evolution of Ortega's thinking vis-à-vis the separation of powers. Ramirez, who took the clearly sensible precaution of leaving Nicaragua a few months back and is now resident in Costa Rica, stands accused of inciting hatred and conspiring to undermine the integrity of the country. What Ramirez actually appears to have done is written a novel entitled "Tongolele Did Not Know How to Dance, an exceedingly thinly veiled parable set in a contemporary Nicaragua whose people are being terrorised by an overstaying revolutionary government which has long since abandoned whatever principles may once have animated it and is now concerned only with maintaining power at any price, up to and including the blood of its own citizens." Whoever could he mean, etc. This is, it is fair to say, personal in both directions. There was a time when Ortega and Ramirez were both friends and allies. Ramirez was one of the establishment intellectuals known as the Group of Twelve, who lent credibility and legitimacy to Ortega's Sandinistas as they seized power from the miserable dictatorship of Anastasio Somoza in 1979. Between 1985 and 1990, indeed, Ramirez was content to serve as Ortega's vice president. Ortega's current vice president, by way of illumination of the seething cloistered lunacy into which his rule has descended, is his wife. Ortega and Ramirez fell out in the mid-1990s as it became clear to Ramirez that Ortega had very much become yet another picturesque Latin American rebel, gushingly romanticized and unstintingly indulged by sections of the Western left, who turns out to be a thug, a tyrant, a crook and a dingbat. You think they'd notice a pattern emerging and so forth. The will of Nicaragua's regime is to repress everyone that go against its dictatorial ways. Ramirez took to teeing off at Ortega in print and in interview, at home and abroad, especially after Ortega won a second stint as Nicaraguan president in 2007, an interminably ongoing term which Ortega hopes to extend yet further in elections in November. And here is the real context of Ortega's vendetta. Old, frightened and paranoid, Ortega has spent the campaign rounding up and or cracking down on what he thinks of as the usual suspects. At least 34 of Ortega's most prominent critics have been placed under house or actual arrest. Newspaper editors, journalists, trades union leaders, pretty much everybody who had hoped to run against him for the presidency and one former first lady.
8: There was no point in remaining there. I only had two options. Either they would uh, take me to jail or they could deport me. I didn't know which of the two.
4: Ortega might not be able to reach Ramirez where he is, but he can deter him from coming home. Ortega will probably be re-elected in November. It is reasonable, all things considered, to assume that he has taken precautions to guarantee the result even beyond locking up his potential opponents. His persecution of the country's best-known writer and his former friend isn't close to the worst thing Ortega has done, but it is one of the more wretchedly indicative manifestations of the shambles into which the Sandinista revolution has descended. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks,
0: Andrew. From a novelist who wrote themselves into exile to a bookshop changing the lives of Danish citizens for our next item. As for this week's episode of Tall Stories, we visit an English-language bookshop based in Copenhagen that is changing the lives of the capital's residents. Here with this report is Monaco's contributor in the city, Gabriele Delisanti.
8: Bookshops create community, and they create community around stories. So it gives people an opportunity to meet around subjects that they might not otherwise talk about. So it opens up lots of doors and lots of ideas for
6: people. Isabella Smith opened Books & Company over 12 years ago, a small, light-filled bookshop and café located just off the High Street in Hellerup an affluent residential district just north of Copenhagen. Books & Company is the Danish capital's only English-language bookshop. It houses anything from best-selling fiction to cookbooks, magazines and newspapers, titles that Isabella likes to display in the shop's main window overlooking the quiet side street, often by lining colour-coded book covers. Today, on an early autumn morning, The display includes rows of carefully placed fiction and non-fiction books in varying shades of yellow. Over the years, Isabella learned that relying on such a well-selected and diverse stock has kept her customer base strong. So in a world where
8: most bookselling happens online, an independent bookshop needs to be able to persuade people to leave their computers, walk outside and into an independent bookshop. And the way to do that is to have a well-curated selection of books And in our store, the way we choose books is we really choose according to our interest. And we have a very wide selection of books. And they may not all be books that we would personally want to read, but we find them interesting for one reason or another. And that also makes it much easier to sell a book. If you find a book interesting, it's much easier to sell.
6: Isabella, who is of mixed Iranian and Danish origins, has always had a passion for bookshops. As someone who grew up in multiple countries around the world, she came to appreciate the familiar and welcoming ambience of a neighborhood bookseller. And most of all, its contribution to the local community, establishing a meeting spot around books.
8: So when I moved back to Copenhagen after living abroad for over 10 years, I discovered that I had spent a lot of my time in foreign cities looking for a place where I could feel at home. And that was often bookshops and cafes or ideally both in one place. And then when I moved back, I realized that that didn't really exist in this city and definitely not with English language books. And I wanted to create a place where people could come and feel at home They could sit, they could talk to us, they could have a coffee or a tea, they could browse the books. But really a huge part of it, of opening the bookstore, was to create a hub for the international
6: community. And she tells me how, over the past decade, Books & Company has established itself as a popular community hub. Welcoming everyone from commuters popping by for a latte and a copy of the FT to residents hungry for their next page-turner. All by ensuring that the neighbourhood can rely on a healthy variety of businesses, big and small.
8: So one of the reasons that we stay in Helob is also that over the past 12 years that we've been here, we have realised that what makes a small town like this come alive is to have a diverse selection of shops. And often if you're in an expensive neighbourhood... The shops that survive are the ones that are clothing shops or restaurants and cafes, which is great. But what is really nice is to have small, unique, independent bookshops or other kinds of unique shops that will create more of an atmosphere and a greater selection for the people who live in the neighborhood. And it's very important because that is what makes a neighborhood unique. So it doesn't become a generic street that looks like any other street everywhere else, but that it has character and personality and makes you want to go from shop to shop instead of going to one shop and going home again.
6: And as all restrictions are lifted in Denmark this month, Isabella is looking forward to hosting weekly book clubs and organizing book launch events over the autumn. For a place that relies and thrives on an enthusiastic customer base, Books & Company and its small team of seven have much to look forward to this season. You have lots of challenges
8: when you have a small independent bookshop, but it is by far the best business to be in. And I've been here for 12 years and I still get excited every time new books come in.
0: Monocle's contributor in Copenhagen, Gabriella Dellisanti there. Staying in the Danish capital for our next highlight, as for this week's edition of The Entrepreneurs, host Daniel Bage caught up with Charlotte Vonsgaard, a senior partner at Red Associates, a strategic consultancy firm with offices in Copenhagen and New York. The agency is all about what it calls a human-centred approach to doing business. Across a host of sectors, from tech to finance and mobility, Charlotte and Red are helping companies to unlock the Their full potential inside and out. Let's have a listen.
9: For businesses to make good business decisions, they need to understand people better. So, we bring a human perspective, social science based perspective into businesses by researching how people think and feel and dream, what they aspire for themselves, for the world, and understanding of that into all business decisions. And we do that across the world in very different industries and everything from healthcare, the social impact space to the luxury industry. So really across. And we're based in Copenhagen and New York where we have offices. And then we sort of work with clients in Paris, London, New York, and Northern
7: Europe. It's a fascinating business. And I want to dig into some specifics on the work that you are doing. But first, Charlotte, I would just love to hear how you came into the company, you started out on a different career path, I think, studying political science. So talk to me just a little bit about what brought you into this world of consulting and and what the idea was like fifteen years ago.
9: I started out in a very different way. I'm a political scientist. When I studied political science it was very obvious that you would go into some sort of government, certainly not business. So I started working for the UN, doing development work in the Middle East, where the whole idea was to try from a social perspective to mitigate negative effects of economic reform that was being tried out at that point ages ago. That was my first job and I thought that would be my career. And then I quite quickly realized that it wasn't for me. There's a lot of fantastic work happening in that space, but the UN is a very large, complicated organization. And uh, for me, that meant that uh, I felt that I wasn't really, I drowned in the bureaucracy and the rules and, and, and couldn't really see how my specific contribution for me, any difference whatsoever. So I didn't want to do that anymore. So I went back to Denmark and wrote speeches for a while, still staying in government. And then I realized, well, this is really boring. I want to change. So I took an MBA, not because I was particularly interested in the MBA, but because some smart people told me that you, if you want to do a dramatic career change, you need to do something to shift your resume so people would believe what you're saying when you say that you're serious about, for example, this case, business. So I did, and I joined uh, Red Associates. It had existed for a few months at that point. I joined a very ambitious, yet it felt like a completely unrealistic project, which was to introduce the social sciences as a decision tool into business, into business decisions. And that's really what we've been working on ever since. But back then, I felt that I sort of had to leave behind all that social impacts, social change work that had led me to development work, that didn't really belong in business and there was no space for it. It was seen as as something that the do-gooders would do. If any relevance, then it would be niche projects in companies that the CSR teams would take on and it would have no real impact on businesses. So I kind of left that behind and, and focused on building With the the other guys, the company building a company that could take this new perspective into business decisions and to change the way businesses operate and uh, service their, their clients or customers.
7: It's a really interesting story. And there's something that you said when we first spoke, telling me that story about sort of having to put aside your interest in wanting to have an impact, especially in a social space, but then realizing at a time that you didn't really need to, that it was important to sort of be yourself and that in an entrepreneurial way, you could show some of yourself and inject that into the work and the very important work that the company is doing. Talk to me a little bit about that sort of discovery and how important that has been for you both personally and professionally.
9: I'm getting old and I think when you get old you start thinking about whether you're actually doing the things that really that matter to you. And for me, there was a reason why I went into development back then. It was because I thought there were so many unjust things in the world. It felt Wrong not to be working on those. I thought, well, it's such a difficult space and I don't even know how to succeed there. But then over the last couple of years, it's as if the world has, uh, it has changed. Businesses are not changing. So there is a, a much bigger awareness in businesses today that to be successful in business, you need to be thinking about the impact you're having on the social worlds around you. It's not only about sort of short-term earnings and quality earnings and short-term goals, running a business and do, doing well. It's also the longer-term implications of the kind of work you do and the, the way you impact your customers and consumers, the world that your products or services live in. And with that, realize, and I mean, it's no surprise. I mean, we all, uh, you don't have to uh, go online for a second to see how many disasters are evolving around us. Obviously, the dramatic climate change. But these days, I think no one with any heart can look at the news without also thinking that the social disasters um, are enormous. And it feels kind of ridiculous not to think about all those enormous challenges that that mankind is faced with and that businesses can impact. It feels ridiculous not to take that a little bit seriously and be thoughtful And, you know, devote serious brain space and money to figure out what to do about it, how to use your business to also drive Mm -hmm. social impact. And that's, of course, where consulting firms like Royal Associates come in. And for me personally, that has meant that I, that we increasingly are able to combine sort of this big push that isn't over pushing social science into companies and putting sort of people's behaviors and doing aspirations at the heart of business decisions. So that is not done, right? We'll keep on doing that. But combining that with this angle of yeah social impact and thinking through with our clients, what does whatever they do, how, how do those products or, or ways of producing them impact the world and how could that that impact be a positive one? So that companies don't just leave the world behind in a more effective companies may actually also leave the world more equitable and then more and then greener are trying to help them do that.
7: Well, talk to me actually a little bit about how that works. You talked about using sort of social sciences and this human-centered approach to doing business across your portfolio. You know, it seems to be sort of Butting up against or jarring with the way that a lot of people have come to do business and that is through technology, I guess we can say, relying on data, algorithms, things like that, especially in guiding decision making. But now we have such an interest in reacting to consumer behavior and interests. So talk to me about actually how that sort of human centered design works.
9: I think that the way to think about it is that, you know, for a long time, and even mostly today obviously. As a business leader, lots and lots of decisions need to be made all the time about, you know, where to invest, what kind of campaigns to create, what markets to focus on, what new products to launch. And most business leaders are trained in a very particular type of data to make those, using a very particular type of data to make those decisions. And that data is very often, it's it's quantitative, so it's numbers, it translates nicely into also dollar signs. It's easy to make those calculations. So there is not very numeric, but it's also very often built on a, an underlying assumption that uh, past performance and past behaviors are good indicators of future performance and behaviors. I would say that both these fundamental logics are, they're not 100% wrong, but they are not 100% right either. So first, this whole idea that numeric assigning a numeric value to a behavior is the most important thing when you're going to make a decision, I think is a flawed logic. I think assigning a meaning and understanding meaning and uncovering what are the underlying drivers behind people's behaviors and choices is a lot more important than being able to assign a numeric value to something that is so synthesized in a way that it loses all, all meaning. In fact, so that's one aspect. And the other aspect is that to use past behaviors and past performance as an indicator of future performance and behaviors in a situation where lots of things are changing, are in a very stable environment where you know your business and your customers very well and where, where the trend line is, is quite stable, then by all means, don't speak to people like us, anthropologists and political scientists and sociologists your numbers, <laughs> just extend the trend line and you're fine. But if you're looking at a well, world where a lot of the underlying drivers that you've been relying on maybe shifting and where you feel a little bit unsure that you're right, that the past is a good predictor of the future, then using a different kind of data and different type of insight to drive your business, I think becomes really important. And that's where the and people that approach the world more from a that use many different types of data that don't just focus on what people report or say to you in surveys and stuff, but actually focus on the context of behaviors and the context of people's dreams and aspirations. And from that, try to say something about what will be important in the future. Looking at how that context around people's choices is changing, I think becomes really yeah, valuable. There's a lot of demand for it because I think a lot of clients are realising that it's just not enough to use that kind of old uh, old uh, but stoic data.
0: Charlotte Vangsgaard, a senior partner at Red Associates, speaking to Daniel Bates from Copenhagen, and the full interview can be heard at monocle.com forward slash radio. Still to come here on The Curator, we find out why China is celebrating the success of the 18-year-old US Open winner, we get a preview of the eagerly anticipated autumn art season, and we meet the lead singer of British band Saint Etienne. Stay tuned.
9: UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivalled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
10: The question of what constitutes the best quality of life is in sharper focus in 2021 than perhaps ever before. So why not join Monocle's editors in Athens later this month to learn how to restart and reshape our lives, companies and hometowns. All that and the perfect chance to explore a city on the rise. The three-day event brings together more than 25 speakers and a team of delegates for an in-depth look at the best projects, people and practices helping to create and nurture dynamic cities around the globe. Hear from author and columnist Thomas Chatterton-Williams, Emma Tucker, editor of The Sunday Times, U.S. Ambassador to Greece Jeffrey Pyatt, Aegean Airlines CEO Dimitri Girojianis, and many more. Be in the room where it happens. Tickets are selling fast. To pick up yours and to find out more, visit monocle.com forward slash events now. The Monocle Quality of Life Conference, from the 23rd to the 25th of September. See you in Athens.
0: You are with the Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippie
7: how's that for an ending she went 10 rounds without dropping a set
0: That was the moment that Emma Raducanu won the US Open in New York last weekend. The 18-year-old who grew up in the English town of Bromley has received a message of congratulations from the Queen, but her shared Chinese heritage has also won over fans in her mother's homeland. For more on this, I was joined by Isabel Hilton, founder of China Dialogue, on Monday's edition of The Briefing. I began by asking Isabel how widespread the excitement had been in China.
11: Well, it it was commented on uh, Global Times, which is perhaps the most nationalist of of China's official media, commented approvingly, and also commented on the social media uh, support Uh, For her and the fact that uh, Chinese heritage was playing very well with the with the masses, there had been a little bit of pushback on social media. But on the whole, it seems that her followers were very um, happy to claim her Um, and indeed uh, attributed her resilience and her, uh, her general success to the Chinese half of her heritage.
0: Can you tell us more why you think the Chinese have been so excited? Sure, Raducanu has Chinese roots, but nevertheless, she grew up in England.
11: She did grow up in in England but she does speak a uh, rather good Chinese her, her mother is from Dongbei uh in in the north of China from Shenyang which is a a former steel town yes. and uh, northern uh, the northern accent plays well with with anyone north of the Yangtze and the fact that she did give an interview in in Chinese and talked about uh going back to visit her grandmother so that that all went down very well. And I think, you know, China's not the only country that will claim a a, a successful sporting star as their own. After all, the British seem very happy to claim uh, Emma Raducanu, despite the fact that she has a Romanian father, a Chinese mother, and was born in Canada. So I think, you know, one can understand the uh, the desire to adopt when, when someone's famous. And it's been a while since China has had a tennis star. Um, they had Lina, who uh, was Uh, rose to be number two in the world and is in the tennis hall of fame by now but she retired in 2014 when she was 32 so it's been a little quiet on the tennis front for Chinese tennis fans
0: I I was just going to ask how popular sport tennis is in China at the moment how long do we need to wait until we get another tennis superstar from that country
11: well, we'll see. Uh, they they haven't done too badly. They tend to do better in in sports that I think are paid less attention uh, attention to outside Asia. They're obviously very good at badminton and uh, and and they um, they have in fact the world's best badminton player at the moment. Uh, they're very good at table tennis. You know, they're other sort of classical Chinese uh, sport. Tennis is relatively new. It, they really began promoting tennis domestically after it became uh, an Olympic sport court. But then it grew very fast. The state has invested in uh, creating lots of tennis courts and trying to encourage China's new middle classes to play and they're fairly keen because, you know, it, it has a certain social standing and it seems a sort of healthy family activity. So there is, a, you know, there is a constituency for tennis in, in China. And I think that Raducanu's success is going to uh, is going to give it a boost. So it might be not too long to wait before we have another Chinese, all Chinese tennis star.
0: Do you think Raducanu could somehow benefit from the attention she's getting from China now?
11: Well, she she might uh, get a big boost um, if she were to go and play in one of the major Chinese tournaments. And they do have grandmasters tournaments in China. Um, She would be hugely popular, I think, if she did that. Um, I mean, she's got a lot on her plate anyway, coping with this success and whatever follows. So I, I think it would be up to her and her team to decide. But, you know, it would be. A popular thing to do, and she would certainly get a big following. She has a a, a social media account which uh, she hasn't paid very much attention to to date. But I would anticipate that were she to give it some, some love, she would get a massive following on Chinese social media.
0: Isabel Hilton, founder of China Dialogue, in conversation with me earlier this week. You are with the Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24. Now the eagerly anticipated autumn art season is finally upon us. For many, this will be their first cultural outing in a while, but also for many cultural institutions, this will mark their grand reopening after over a year of coronavirus-related closures. So who better than Ben Luke, the review editor at the Arts Newspaper, to bring us up to speed with what's coming up this it's awesome here is Ben
12: Visiting museums in the time of coronavirus still feels exceptional. In some parts of the world, galleries have now been open for more than a year after the first lockdown, and yet few are operating at normal capacity, and masks and social distancing are, of course, widely mandatory. In some cases, this rather diminishes the institutions. To visit Take Modern in London or the Museum of Modern Art in New York, spaces built to absorb vast numbers of visitors and recently expanded further to welcome even more can feel strangely melancholy. But in some ways this is the optimum moment to visit our art museums. Reduced capacity and greater space means more time with great works of art. Before we come to the big shows and museum openings this autumn it's worth thinking about visiting the collections of the great museums you may never have a better chance to be immersed in those works normally surrounded by a throng of tourists. The museum world's responded cautiously to Covid. Exhibitions are fewer and many will now last longer to allow enough people to see them within restrictions and of course to cover the costs of putting on expensive loan shows. But there are many mouth-watering prospects in the coming months. The highlight of the U.S. calendar is surely a double retrospective in New York and Philadelphia of the work of Jasper Johns, opening on the 29th of September. It's an innovative concept. Two major museums, the Whitney Museum of American Art and the Philadelphia Museum of Art, running parallel survey shows of a single artist, but it fits Johns' oeuvre, which is full of series, mirrored ideas and repetition. Both shows will feature more than 250 works and they take advantage of the fact that Johns is still with us at age 91. They're mining his personal collection of his own work to unveil paintings, drawings, prints and sculptures that have rarely been seen. Of course, there'll be the flags, the targets, numbers and maps, those signature works that shock the New York art world dominated by abstract expressionism in the 1950s, but they'll also reflect the rich body of work that Johns has made in the decades since. In Paris, later this week, is the unveiling, or should that be veiling, of the final project by Christo and Jean-Claude, the duo famous for wrapping everything from landmark buildings to coastlines in fabric. The Arc de Triomphe will be wrapped in 25,000 square metres of recyclable polypropylene in silvery blue and with 3,000 metres of red rope. The project is particularly poignant. Christo and Jean-Claude met in Paris in 1958 and Christo, who in the early 1960s lived in an apartment near the Arc de Triomphe, first made a drawing of the Rat Monument in 1962. 60 years later, after decades of dashed hopes and frustration, it's finally happening, but Christo sadly died last year before he got the chance to see his vision realised. The project's on view for just two weeks, from the 18th of September to the 3rd of October. Also in Paris is a huge exhibition dedicated to Annie and Joseph Albers, who've both been the subject of individual retrospectives, but not of a major show dedicated to them both. It'll focus on their years at the Bauhaus and then the decades after they fled Germany for the United States where both were influential teachers as well as creating extraordinary works including Annie's textile masterpieces and graphic works and Joseph's seminal Homage to the Square series of paintings. The show has just opened and continues until 9th January next year. In London, highlights include the National Gallery's exhibition focusing on Nicolas Poussin's luminous paintings Responding to Dance, opening on the 9th of October, and take Modern's show of Lubena Himid, the painter and activist who was a key figure in the British black arts movement of the 1980s. That show opens on the 25th of November. But perhaps the highlight of this season in the British capital is the reopening after three years of the Courtauld, that often overlooked gallery in Somerset House, which houses one of the greatest collections of art in the UK, including extraordinary Impressionist and post-Impressionist masterpieces. As well as revealing refurbished spaces and temporary shows, the gallery is showing off a new contemporary commission. Its narrow, curved staircase has been embellished with a new large-scale painting by the British american artist cecily brown she's a fitting choice few artists today are as steeped in the history of painting that the courtauld so powerfully shows us
0: that was ben luke the review editor at the art newspaper for the monocle daily earlier this week Staying in the cultural realm for our final highlight of the show, the British band Saint Etienne have just released their 10th album called I've Been Trying to Tell You, which is accompanied by a film by the fashion photographer Alistair MacLellan. On this week's monocle on culture, MacLellan and Saint Etienne's lead singer Sarah Cracknell joined Robert Bound to tell him all about it.
13: And I'm joined um, by Sarah and Alistair. I'm um, lovely to have you both on the programme. And you've created—you've both created such a beautiful, euphoric universe um, for, for, for listeners and viewers to, to bathe in. So I wanted to start with, with you and how you and Bob and Pete put this record together. What were the reminiscences that drove it, if indeed they were reminiscences, because it feels like a nostalgic project?
2: There is nostalgia involved, but I mean, obviously we like, to make music that's for the future as well. But I know what you mean. Yeah, we had this idea about how you misremember things and you remember things through a kind of fog of, you know, you remember the good bits or do you remember it correctly, and (laughs) etc. And um, we were thinking about the period between about 97 and, and then the Twin Towers going down and about, there was a lot of optimism in 97, a huge amount of optimism. And then... Yeah. Did we remember it correctly, etc. So we we started making music with that in mind. And it's quite sort of not, certainly not lyrically specific, I was I yeah, really didn't want it to be lyrically specific. As much
13: as I've loved your lyrics, the sharpness and that kind of that sense of remember the future, which I think mm. this, this project shares as well. I love the sharpness of those lyrics, but I love also how this one is non-specific and is, as I say, yeah, taps into a sense of sort of general euphoria and optimism and yeah, memory somehow.
2: Yeah, and about remembering when you were young and stuff like that. I mean, obviously, Alistair will talk about that, because um, the visuals <laughs> are very much about remembering when you were young and yeah. stuff, or yeah, the kind of things we used to do when we were young. Yeah.
13: Alistair, at what point were you consulted to come on and make, make the film of the record? The film seems to share such a kind of central DNA of that idea that Sarah's talking about of yeah, remember the future. I suppose. I mean, yeah, there was there was an element of that that, I, like, um,
14: like Sarah said, I didn't want it to be too particularly a nostalgic project. But I just came from the the point when Bob sort of asked me to collaborate with them. They had actually had a different album completely, and but they couldn't then finish that because of lockdown, um, because they couldn't go into a studio. So they. I don't know how they came up with this other one, but anyway, so the, the the pandemic happened and then I sort of emailed Bob in, I don't know, May, June, 2020. And he said, I said, are we still doing stuff? He said, yes, we are, but I think we're not going to do that album. And then he sent me five tracks of this new album. And so instantly I sort of felt like it It kind of reminded me of, I mean, it kind of reminded me of the early nineties, some of it, like the first two tracks in particular and, and uh, the first track felt quite English because they sort of they used these harpsichords, or oh, I thought they'd use these harpsichords. But then it, as it turns out, it was actually a sample from a um, sort of late '90s R&B record. When I don't know, a lot of I guess a lot of American producers were putting these weird harpsichords in yeah. a lot of R&B music. So I instantly sort of thought of uh, was being quite obvious and thought it was Tudor, and that they anyway. So I, I thought of the UK in general, which just sort of making a film about the UK, and that was something Bob was keen on. So I, I just started to think about. Um, What I was doing when I was first listening to their music when I was sort of like, I don't know, 15, 16 and sort of the boredom of that time. But there was something sort of quite lovely about that boredom and quite innocent about it. You know, I used to just walk around the streets like the boy does in the video when he walks around bungalows. That's all all we do sometimes is just walk around with your friends around bungalows and... And you used to do it in Windsor, didn't you?
13: When you
2: yeah, I did. Which is a sl- <laughs> slightly nicer than South well, Yorkshire, but anyway. It's, um... well, I don't know, there's a
13: sort of benign sense of kind of that, there's a sense of that teenage self where you, you, have, you have no sense that time will ever run out, right? You've got that luxurious ennui of those long summers and the sun always seems to be out. And that probably comes down to whether you're remembering your past correctly yeah. or whether you're glossing over it like a lovely, like a photographic memory almost. Yeah, did that absolutely. Did that tap into the, into the the writing of the music, Sarah?
2: Yeah, and I, th- I mean, I think I've said I said to Bob, um, for me it's a kind of late. It's a bit like now, you know. It's a kind of
13: we should say we're recording this on a. It's, it's going to be t- I think possibly twenty nine thirty degrees in London today.
2: Yeah, and I love that late summer thing because mm. in my garden, you know, there's leaves falling and you know they're starting to turn a little bit autumnal looking and that's what it feels like for me but i think it can be different for everybody you know bob just said yeah i know what you mean but i mean you probably Alison, think of it differently the 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 timing of what the re- record feels like as you know sort of i don't know i don't i don't see it as a winter album put it no that way. it
13: doesn't feel it <laughs> i mean it reminded me I, I said to holly who's fresh from the end of the road festival oh yeah today He's definitely got a safe hand on the tiller in the control room, I'm <laughs> sure. But um, it felt felt like the memory of a festival somehow. That thing when you're kind of driving, you're back, you're, you're on the train, or you're going back in the car, and you've got that sort of warm kind of remin- That very that kind of warm reminiscence of something that that could soon be passed. You know, yeah, it felt, and, and,
2: and the melancholy, aspect. isn't it? It is not it a is. melancholy, which I love. You know, yeah. mel- melancholy is the best sort of feeling or sentiment for any <laughs> record ever isn't it it and is it, and it,
13: I love it they're definitely going to quote you on that I love that it is <laughs> a, such a
2: commanding it is sentiment best, isn't it yeah, yeah. and um, we try and capture that wherever possible and <laughs> so I think with this record yeah we were trying to go for the kind of melancholy you know things are good were they good maybe they weren't so good now they're getting better. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> it's got <laughs> kind of, yeah, yeah. it's also like a certain
14: thing of time, isn't it, when you when you are of a certain age and your parents are saying, "Oh, this is the best time of your life." And you think, "Well, how can this possibly be the best time of my life because I'm bored. Yeah. I'm walking around some bungalows <laughs> <laughs> or I'm um, I i do not know, like it, it, and you then you're scarred by the bungalow. Well, no, it's, just, <laughs> it's just that you then actually sort of realize that it was actually quite nice. I know. But you no, don't definitely. appreciate it obviously.
2: Yeah, no, I hate it. Because you're young. It. And yeah, at the time I thought it was crap and yeah. like I said to you I used to go sneak out and go night fishing <laughs> which sounds like yeah. some mad euphemism I'm going night fishing yeah exactly then... <laughs> just flash your headlights and it'll yeah. be fine <laughs> in a clearing and, uh, and I'd go off with uh, a friend of mine Tony McKeith on the back of his little uh, tiny motorbike and we'd go off night fishing and then I got caught coming back and crawling through the, yeah. the, <laughs> the cloakroom <laughs> window one day by my dad but uh
13: did you have to sort of go by the fishmongers and buy a trout as cover?
2: <laughs> we were not genuinely, honestly fishing. I promise you, we
13: actually were. <laughs> um, I love that, though, because there is that. Well, actually, I wanted to, to, I wanted to ask you, Alistair, about the, the movement in the film. It's got a very kind of propulsive energy to it. And we go on a road trip, which I didn't know that I was going to be doing when I first listened to the album. But where did that come in? We kind of quickly make our way from the environs of London up to Scotland. Yes, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, when did when did the road trip idea kick in? Because it's always a good one. It's like melancholy is the best sentiment for an album. A road trip movie is always good. When I first started talking
14: to Bob, we were sort of talking about things we liked about the UK, Um weirdly, we both quite like the A1. I think it's because I travel up there to see my mum, and my brother still lives in the same village that I grew up in, and then he go, travels also the same route up to Bradford. Um, so we just talked about things we liked, service stations we liked and all these sort of things. And then it sort of became a bit bigger and I sort of started to think about what Saint-Etienne's music had influenced me and my visual sense over the years in my photography and, you know, filmmaking and that. And then we liked, you know, we like the idea of factory. So it made sense that you'd sort of, that we would sort of have that A1 sort of, um, movement going through it but it was like but rather than sort of going with people on a road trip you sort of just going to different places yeah so like I, I started to think about you know the idea that 1017's music is kind of international as much as it's sort of me- meant to be sort of quintessentially English and all that sort of thing that you know they get I guess that people think they know about their music they also have this sort of cinematic side that's like Influenced by European cinema, and I yeah. sort of feel like anyway. And so that's why I was interested in using Port Merion because it's like this strange Italian village in the middle of Wales, and that's where I came with that one. And then
13: that's that is a beautiful sequence, yeah, yeah. so I just, strange it's, and it's just beguiling, such a isn't it? weird place. It's
14: yeah. uh, it's like Portofino yeah. or something, it's like yeah. in the middle of Wales, and so I thought <laughs> that made sort of sense to do something there that felt, I guess, not so sort of that felt like a specific time almost looked like a sort of like strange little film within that film that's not really connected to youth culture or of the 90s or anything like that that was I sort of felt like that should be its own little thing and so then we just sort of like traveled around looking at factories and then I I remembered a school trip that I did which was in the Yorkshire Dales where we would just go and look at waterfalls and go in the water and then that's kind of what that ended up one of the songs ended up being sort of a reminiscent version of a school trip and that's kind of what the the whole thing. So it it does have a it does have a road trip, but it was never really intended to sort of be like a typical road trip movie where you'd I don't know, it's like not you know not, not easy rider not easy rider or wilder heart
13: it's it is a San Etienne road trip where we see yeah some sort of, of r- yeah. Some, some brutal and beautiful architecture yes love is after all like a motorway as someone once said God knows who <laughs> um, and uh, and it and it's got that wonderful propulsive modernity to it, but it's also very it does feel like a uniquely it feels like Britain looking at itself in a in a mirror. When you first saw the rushes for the for Alistair's film, what, I mean, did it feel like looking looking at a the imagination that made the record? Because it's tough to pin down the reasons that you make an LP and the music. You know, as you said, the, the lyric writing is quite non specific for this album. Sarah, does the the film help you kind of define it now that it's now that both of those things live alongside and with each other? I wonder. Exactly. Oh, damn. i are going to ask shorter questions. The Do question. you like Alice's <laughs> <episode?
2: laughs> mix? Um, yeah, so I think I saw the first three songs first, and it's exactly that. It sort of made some sense out, out of the music for me. And I think that, yeah, alongside each other, the film and the music just... It just works, it just really, really works because I, mean, I know that, I think, Alice, you said there's no narrative in the film, and I know there isn't but there is more in the film than there is probably in the music and Possibly, maybe A little bit <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, I, I, I think, that I'm giving you the forum to work this out <laughs> publicly <here. laughs> So I just feel that it makes more sense out of me, I think there's a, more of a journey when you have the two side by side
0: Alastair MacLellan and Sarah Cracknell speaking to Robert Bound for this week's edition of Monocle on Culture. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impian, presented by me, Marcus Hippy. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24, and thanks for listening.